Welcome back, my friends. Welcome back to Corbett Report Radio. I am, of course, your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and I am coming to you, as always, from my palatial home recording studios in the sunny climes of western Japan. And boy, do we have an action-packed, power-packed transmission lined up for you this evening. So don't touch that dial. We have not one, but two guests lined up for you tonight. And in the latter half of tonight's broadcast, we're going to be talking with an Australian living here in Japan, talking about the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear crisis here, and why neither himself nor myself have yet fled the country, which is something that I know a lot of you out there are interested in, and I've received a lot of emails and and phone calls and questions about that uh, over the last several months. So I'm I'm looking forward to hashing out that topic in some greater detail and going over some of the the worries and and things that we think might have been overblown about the Fukushima story. And, of course, you'll know that I'm keeping a daily update on Fukushima at FukushimaUpdate.com. So stay tuned for more of that. But right off the top tonight, we're going to be bringing on a special guest, Ted Walter. And I'm sure that many of you in the audience are probably already familiar with Ted's work Especially, of course, uh, he was an executive director of the NYC CAN initiative back in 2009, which was a ballot initiative in New York City to try to uh, re- establish a local commission to conduct an impartial reinvestigation of the events of 9-11. And it was successful in signing up 80,000 New Yorkers onto their petition. But unfortunately, they did not get past the uh, state Supreme Court so, uh, unfortunately, that ballot initiative did not it result in a new independent investigation. But, uh, but he is also now as- associated with the Remember Building 7 campaign at RememberBuilding7.org. And I'm sure my listeners, again, are familiar with Building 7, i.e. WTC7, the third skyscraper to fall on 9-11, a 47-story skyscraper that imploded into its own footprint at, uh, well, freefall acceleration for two seconds of its seven, roughly seven-second descent on the, the afternoon of 9-11-2001. And, of course, people can read more about Building 7 if they haven't heard of it before at RememberBuilding7.org. And tonight we're going to be talking about an offshoot of that campaign, Occupy Building 7, which can be found at OccupyBuilding7.org. That's the number 7, OccupyBuilding7.org, where you can find out about this attempt to rally people in support of the cause of reestablishing an investigation into WTC7 and demanding action on that front. So, again, an absolutely fascinating conversation lined up for tonight, and I believe we have Ted on the line already. Ted, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you for having me. Well, it is great to, to finally talk with you and to talk with you about this extremely important subject, but we only have a minute or two before the first break. So just in this first minute or two, perhaps you can introduce yourself and the work that you've done on this issue in the past. Sure. Well, you, you gave me a great, um, pretty comprehensive introduction. So I started I started working on uh, the 9-11 ballot initiative in New York City in 2008 and through on to 2009. And as you said, we collected 80,000 signatures um, and unfortunately didn't get on the ballot. Uh, because the city of New York uh, rejected our petition. And since then, uh, NYC CAN has been working on, uh, we've shifted our focus to Building 7 and raising awareness of that, because we feel like that's going to be the gateway for uh, the American public to you know, really learn the truth about 9-11. And a lot has happened in the last year, and we're, um, we're continuing at it. And what we have coming up this weekend, as you said, is Occupy Building 7. Um, that will be the start of what will 
long-term sustained action um, that will bring serious public attention to uh, the destruction of Building 7. I certainly hope it will do that, because I think, as anyone who's taken a look at Building 7 will know, uh, Building 7 is very much the, the Achilles heel for the official conspiracy theory of 9-11, and there's a lot to be uh, said about that. So I'm very much looking forward to tonight's conversation, again, talking with Ted Walter of OccupyBuilding7.org. Let's take our first break. We'll be back in just a few minutes. You just do as you're told. Welcome back to tonight's broadcast, friends. James Corbett here from CorbettReport.com, and you are tuned into Corbett Report Radio right here on the Republic Broadcasting Network. And tonight we are talking to Ted Walter of OccupyBuilding7.org, the latest offshoot of the Remember Building 7 campaign, which itself was an offshoot of the NYC CAN campaign, and Occupy Building 7 seeking to rally people on November 19th and 20th around the currently rebuilt World Trade Center Building 7 to try to raise awareness of the the major Achilles heel in the official 9-11 story. So, Ted Walter, it's great to have you on the program tonight, and let's start getting into the story of how NYC CAN came to become Remember Building 7 and started concentrating on that issue specifically. Wow, that's a a lot of history. Well, let me, let me think. Um, so I got involved personally with uh, the New York City uh, 9-11 ballot initiative in 2008. And during the summer of 2008, we succeeded in collecting about 30,000 signatures, which was part way to what we needed to collect in order to put uh, the referendum on the ballot for a new investigation to happen in New York City. And um, by, the, by the time we got to the end of the, the summer in September 2008, we realized that we were going to continue going through the next year, and um, in order to get to that right, 75,000, 80,000 range that we needed in terms of signatures, and so we decided to revamp things a little bit, um, and one of the most important changes that we, uh, well, I wouldn't call it a change, but, uh, you know, evolutions in our in our campaign was bringing on board uh, several 9-11 victims family members who had been involved in the 9-11 truth movement, and really getting uh, them to be sort of the leaders of our of our uh, campaign, um, because we knew that it was their, it was sort of their moral um, legitimacy that, had, you know, for many of us, made us feel comfortable looking at this issue and felt like it was morally right to do so, aside from any other reasons. But they were real leaders, and so we decided to really bring them on board and work with them. And so that's where we went in 2009, and we we started, um, you know, we renamed it the New York City Coalition for Accountability Now, um, NYC Can had a number of 9-11 family members on our executive board. And we got through the summer of 2009, um, having collected the additional 50,000 signatures um, to get us on the ballot. And then um, a month after we filed our petition, the city responded, said that our petition was not legally valid, um, on, you know, on grounds of technicalities. And so uh, we went to court, and we ended up losing in court. And which was not uncommon for, I think there have been about seven ballot initiatives attempted in New York City in the past 25 years before we, before ours, and every single one went through the same process of going, going to court and and losing in court. So, um, the odds were sort of stacked against us once we got to that stage. Um, so 
in the aftermath of that, we sort of we regrouped and we, you know, we started sort of reaching out to city council members in New York. Um, and we, you know, we realized in, in talking to them and, you know, looking at things ourselves that um, Building 7 really was, as you've called it uh, several times, the Achilles heel of 9-11. I think we all, we all know why, um, because the building came straight down in six and a half seconds um, symmetrically into its footprint. And so um, we started focusing on that. And it, so we started, like, really uh, intensively lobbying the city council um, to look at it. We had a phone fax campaign where we got, you know, hundreds of people every single day to call city council members in New York and three council members per day until we got through all 51 of them. And um, and that eventually evolved. You know, we got to a point where we, we reached out. We actually had meetings with a quarter of the city council, and we said, you know, this is a good start, but in order to really – a lot of these people want to do the right thing and actually have an investigation into Building 7, but really to get it to happen, we had to have pressure. We had to raise awareness within New York City and, of course, beyond. And so we said, okay, let's let's see what, we, what happens if we try to raise money to put ads on TV. And that was the beginning of, well, the Building What campaign at the time is what it was called. And that name hailed from the previous year when we were in court representing our ballot initiative. The judge, when our lawyer mentioned Building 7, the judge said, Building What? Um, having never, you know, ha- having not heard of that building or knowing what it was called. And and so that was what we called the campaign at first. And we did that, end up succeeding in raising $100,000 last uh, September, we had some ads on the air for uh, several weeks. Geraldo Rivera saw the ad and invited us on his show. He was very impressed, um, particularly with the number of architects and engineers at that time who um, had signed on to the Architects and Engineers for 9-11 Truth petition. At the time, I believe it was about 1,300. And um, and so things sort of grew from there. And, and since then, we, we've had another campaign in the spring um, where we raised almost $100,000 with the same number of ads on the air. We didn't get as much uh, success with media coverage, unfortunately. Um, and that's sort of what brought us to decide that we should try to raise a much bigger sum of money. And that's actually what we're in the course of doing right now with Remember Building 7. If you go to that website, you'll see that we're um, we're trying to raise a million dollars, um, which is really the amount where if we got there, you would see pretty much New York City's blanketed in ads for several weeks. And it would really sort of, it would, you know, immediately... Um, cause people to um, talk about Building 7 in the media all over New York, et cetera. So that's why our goal is a million dollars. Um, but in the meantime, while we're there, we've raised, we've raised about $80,000 for that so far. Um, we're also, uh, in the last couple of weeks, last month, started thinking about Occupy Building 7 um, because of the Occupy Wall Street movement, which, you know, to a large extent we've been inspired by. And we, um, you know, we're this event is an autonomous event, not connected to them. It should very, very clear about the fact that at this point in time, there, there's been no official endorsement of our of our action that we're having this weekend, Occupy Building Seven on November 19th and 20th. Um, but we are we are you know in discussion with people like Occupy Wall Street, going to a, a meeting tomorrow to see if they will um, give some level of endorsement to our to our action. And we've been down there flyering flyering a lot, you know, telling people that the action is happening this weekend. And um, the, the response has been very positive. I would say a majority of, of the occupiers down there um, know that 9-11 is a real issue and are definitely uh, you know, behind it. And many of them are looking towards participating in the action this, this weekend. So. Well, excellent. That's, a, that's an excellent summary. And I think 
one thing that I, I hope listeners picked up on there is the fact that uh, Remember Building 7 and now Occupy Building 7 has done the excellent job of really countering those old media canards that that uh, it, it's a disrespect to the uh, victim's family members to talk about th- these types of issues or that uh, that there's no intellectual legitimacy to these these things by including the uh, the victim's family members and featuring them prominently in the advertisements and also, of course, having uh, a relationship with architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth and all of the uh, the thousands of uh, accredited architects and engineers who have who signed on to, to that campaign. So it is absolutely excellent to see that uh, that counteraction going on. So perhaps you could talk about some of the people who are involved with this movement. Sure. Well, I think for, for me, like my personally, who I look to as kind of my moral leader in this in this movement is, is Bob McElveen, um, who I think many, many of you out there are, are familiar with. Um, he's the uh, former teacher from uh, just outside Philadelphia uh, who lost his son on 9-11. Bobby McElvain, and he's been an outspoken advocate um, for many years. And, you know, when I first started working with him, I just being in his presence is, is quite unique, you know, compared um, to he's, um, he's just a very kind person, extremely knowledgeable. And so he's been one of our, you know, really one of our leaders. He, he's appeared in every single one, all three of the TV ads that we have produced. Um, the third one right now, if you go to Occupy, I'm sorry, not Occupy, RememberBuilding7.org, um, you can watch that um, TV ad. Um, the, the last TV ad is, is rather interesting. It, it features, it, uh, each each ad is, is, has featured a different collection of people. The first one was for um, 9-11 family members. The second one was a lot of people. It was four family members plus four um, architects and engineers, two architects, two engineers. Um, and so that was a really sort of, Little three-second uh, action-packed ad um, that brought a lot of uh, you know, a lot of information out, and the most recent one was really um, geared towards the 10th anniversary, and it features um, a, a former uh, U.S. Air Force pilot, uh, Dave Gap, um, as well as a, a structural engineer named Stephen Dusterwald from Las Vegas, uh, Nevada, and a correctional officer um, who uh, in New York. Um, Joey Garofalo, who uh, was a first responder, he was at uh, Ground Zero for the first few weeks after um, 9/11, and he's a, a leader within the first responder community today. One of the, you know the issues that he was very very outspoken about a few months ago was um, the fact that um, James Adroga Bill was not going to be covering uh, cancer, even though a study had just come out uh, showing that um, first responders who were at Ground Zero compared to those in the, in the you know fire department, police department, who weren't um, those who were there actually do have a higher, you know, significantly higher rate of cancer. Um, that was what the study showed, and yet the Jezebrego was not going to cover um, cover those first responders uh, with cancer. So he was very outspoken on that issue as well as several others. And so it was a pleasure to have him um, be in our ad as well. And I, I personally, for my my personal case, I think the last the last ad is, is the strongest because it um, brought together those people from those diverse backgrounds and just the way it was cut together, it was, it was very well done. So I encourage you to go watch it at rememberbuilding7.org. And let 
me echo that that encouragement because I think the ads that you've put together so far for this campaign, all of the ads, I think, have been really tremendous and um, and just keep getting better. So obviously, the money that is being donated to the cause is going to a good use. And as you say, um, yet again, there's another part of the old media canard that if we question what happened on 9/11, we're doing some sort of disservice to the uh, the first responders who uh, many of them obviously lost their lives and others that uh, that were severely affected by going into the rushing into those buildings that day. But of course. It's the exact opposite. It's the people who have been lying and been perpetrating the uh, the conspiracy theory uh, from the beginning. The government officials, who uh, Christy Todd Whitman at the EPA and others, who have been directly harming the first responders and have been for a long time. So, so once again, all part of the media fraud. So let's take another few minute break, and we'll be right back with more about Occupy Building Seven right after this. Radio. Of course, I am your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and tonight we're talking to Ted Walter of OccupyBuilding7.org. Once again, that's the number 7, OccupyBuilding7.org, which is a new idea for raising further awareness about World Trade Center Building 7, of course, the third skyscraper to fall on 9-11-2001. So, uh, Ted Walter, it's great to have you on tonight to talk about this exciting idea. So I think we should talk about Occupy Building 7 itself and what this idea really is and when and where it's taking place and how people can get involved. All right, let's do it. Um, it's uh, happening this weekend, November 19th and 20th. That's Saturday and Sunday. Uh, it's officially starting at noon at Liberty Plaza, which is where Occupy Wall Street is happening, um, otherwise known as Zuccotti Park. Um, and... Uh, the idea is to march over both on Saturday and Sunday um, from Zuccotti Park to uh, Building 7, to the rebuilt uh, Building 7. And there's a park now that is in the, in the footprint um, of the old building. Um, that, that the, the new building uh, is, is smaller. It's about maybe two-thirds of the, of the width of the old one that was a controlled demolition. Um, and so there's an open space now that where people are going to gather and assemble and stay there until nightfall, both Saturday and Sunday. And this is really the start of, you know, what we uh, hope will become a sustained uh, occupation. Uh, we're looking at this park is really a different animal from uh, Liberty Plaza because it's not – Liberty Plaza is sort of a unique status where it's a public-private park. Uh, the park in front of Building 7 is totally private. Um, and so we have no idea how Silverstein properties or how the police are going to respond when we get over there and hopefully – you know, we'll have at least a you know a few hundred people um, going on this on this action, and and so we'll see how they respond. I mean, I, to me, I think it would be rather drastic and unwise on on their part to try to push people off. Um, we really the strategy when people get there is is it's, it's largely up to them. You know, um, I think to, to begin with, we don't want to. Um, create a confrontation where people are, are going to get arrested or people are going to get hurt. Um, but right now we're trying to feel out the situation and see what it's like, see, see what the response is when they go down there, when they try to occupy for, you know, five hours in the afternoon. We'll do that Saturday and Sunday, and, and we'll regroup and, and see, how, see how it went. Um, there's also going to be general assemblies at 2 o'clock each day in the park, so, you know, at in front of Building 7. So 
everybody who's there will get to sort of participate and, you know, have some say in what direction Occupy Building 7 should take after this weekend. Um, so it, it's, it's, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say it's an excellent idea, and it's certainly uh, great to be taking the the energy of the Occupy Wall Street movement and, and forwarding it into something that that really has the potential for for true political change, as the WTC seven issue obviously does. And I think you're uh, you're right to be a bit cautious about the way that the uh, security. Well, I hesitate to use the word goons, but um, but it, anyone who saw the way Luke Rudgowski, for example, was tr- treated by the WTC seven security back um, in I believe two thousand seven when he was protesting outside will know. Uh, just what I'm talking about, but certainly the uh, security forces of uh, the Silverstein uh, minions, um, who knows how they'll react to this. And, of course, there is strength in numbers, so we need to see a lot of people getting out there in a big way. So, uh, first of all, how how can people find out more information about specifically when and where and all of this is happening? And secondly, how about for people who aren't in the New York City area and won't be able to make it? Is there any way they can support what you're doing? Yeah. Um, first of all, the, the website is Occupy Building 7 dot org um, and you go there you'll find the details again it's meeting at 12 o'clock noon on Saturday and Sunday you can come either or both days um, and so it's occupybuilding7.org if you're in New York um, the thing that would be the, really the most helpful is on the website you'll see that there's a flyer that you can print out um, it's a sheet of paper 8.5 by 11 that has six separate flyers on it that you can cut up you know, so you can print out like 10 and have 60 flyers and go down to Occupy Wall Street and hand them out. Um, that, you know, one of the real important aspects of this action is really like reaching out to Occupy Wall Street and, and getting the people there engaged in this issue. And so firing at Occupy Wall Street, telling them about the action that's happening this weekend um, would be a huge help. Um, if you're out of town, uh, I, I think, you know, it's so based on the actual geographic location. You know, it's occupying, literally occupying Boeing 7. I think the most important thing that you can do is tell any friends that you have, encourage any friends that you have in New York to go, um, and then spread the word on Facebook. Talk about it. You know, look look for what look for what's going on, and look for it to actually spread. You know, like people have said, uh, people in other countries have said to us, we want to do, we want to follow Occupy Building Seven. You know, if it starts to grow, we want to have that same day that Occupy Building Seven is happening, happen at embassies all over the world, et cetera. So. Um, I think, you know, spread the word, especially among people in New York, and, and really stay tuned and just send your positive energy that way because it really, it really needs to grow. And it will Absolutely. With, with Absolutely. As I say, I think strength in numbers is the key here, and uh, they can arrest a handful of people or try to demonize or belittle them, but they can't do it if, if hundreds or even thousands of people show up. So I think that's the uh, the most important part. Um, finally, I, I suppose we're all going to uh, to need to follow this uh, wherever we are. Um, I'm, I'm assuming there will be some YouTube videos. Do you have an official YouTube channel? Um. Right now, our, our YouTube channel is still building what? So if you're looking for stuff, you can you can go there. We have uh, maybe we'll start a separate uh, Occupy Building Seven channel, or maybe we'll just start putting all that up on Building What. All right. Um, well, but for the time being, way. people can go to occupybuilding7.org. So, um, so once again, I hope people do at least check it out and try to find out the information that's there. I think this is an exciting new idea to bring awareness to a very important issue. But that's all the time for Ted. So, Ted, thank you so much for joining us, and we'll be right back after this with uh, Fukushima updates. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network because you can handle the truth. 
Welcome back, friends. Welcome back. James Corbett here from CorbettReport.com coming to you, and you are tuned into Corbett Report Radio. Of course, I am broadcasting all the way from the western side of sunny Japan, and for people who are interested, yes, of course, I am constantly keeping an update on the Fukushima situation, and in fact, I'm posting on a daily basis to my website, FukushimaUpdate.com, where you can find all the Fukushima-related information you can handle of course, talking about the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant in the northeastern side of uh, the main island of Japan. And uh, we've been keeping our eye, obviously, on, on a lot of stories that are developing on that front. And uh, I think unless you really are keeping up with it on a daily basis, you probably don't realize just how much new information is coming out on a daily basis. So, for example, just from the last 24 hours on FukushimaUpdate.com, we have posted a, a story, Japanese physicist publishes Fukushima radiation records, about someone who's uh, publishing some information they got from their readings at the Fukushima Medical University, um, right there at the beginning of the the whole uh, 311 disaster. Um, we have photos of the Fukushima One media tour, which uh, people who've been following the site will know just took place. Uh, they've let some people, some media figures, into the Fukushima Daiichi plant to take a look around at the progress that is being made. And uh, some very interesting stories coming out from that, and lots of videos and photos and Really striking photos. Um, this post on Fukushima Update comes from XSKF, a great blog that's keeping an eye on the Japanese media in Japanese and translating it into English for people, so a great resource. And uh, these photos source from Cryptom.org, which is another excellent resource on a whole slew of issues. Uh, we've also got posted a de- an anti-nuclear demonstration that took place in Fukuoka the other day um, in Kyushu with uh, thousands of people attending. And... Uh, Two scientific studies that just came out, as far as I know, just came out today, where I just saw the link today, so I posted them up, and they're at the very top of FukushimaUpdate.com right now. A study on cesium-137 contamination and its spread across Japan, and a study on radionuclide distribution in Japan, showing the uh, the distribution of iodine-131, cesium-137, and other radionuclides uh, in the wake of the 311 disaster. So, again, a lot of information coming out about Fukushima on a daily basis and not a lot of it is particularly hopeful or good information. Of course, we have the pronouncements from TEPCO from time to time that everything's under control. But, of course, the latest pronouncements are still that it will take at least 30 years to really uh, shut down the, the plant. So, so unfortunately, it's just an unfolding disaster that continues to go on and on. And all we know for sure is that, uh, that TEPCO and the J- Japanese government have either lied or withheld information on a number of extremely important points for a long time. And that, to me, is what's worrying. On that note, of course, everyone is always asking why I'm in Japan and what I'm doing here. So tonight I wanted to have on a guest, uh, another uh, foreigner in Japan, an an Australian friend of mine, and anyone who's actually uh, ordered my 2009 video archive DVD from CorbettReport.com. And for the radio listeners out there who might not know, I am an independent media journalist, so I do rely on your support out there to keep going. And uh, you can find out more at CorbettReport.com where you can order a video uh, a DVD that I put out, the 2009 video archive. And the 2010 and 2011 is coming down the line for those who are interested. But at any rate, 2009 video archive uh, includes an interview with myself conducted by my good friend Jamie Owens, who's based right here in Japan and who is also an English teacher, or as I used to be. And uh, he's an Australian citizen. So, so Jamie, it's great to have you on the program tonight. Thanks for taking the time to talk with us. Hey, thanks for having me on, James. It's great to, to be on your new show, and congratulations. It seems to be going really well. Well, I am getting a lot of good feedback from it, so I'm really happy with that. And uh, and as I say, a lot of people obviously want to know 
for people like you and me who are still in Japan at this time. Um, with Why are you still in Japan? Japan? Why are you still in Japan is the question I'm always <laughs> getting. So I guess, maybe let's just start off with that question. Why are you still in Japan, Jamie? Why am I still in Japan? Well, uh, I've been here for about eight years, um, married with two kids. So I guess my, my roots are here. And I think it's important for your listeners to uh, get an understanding just exactly where we're living. So um, I'm from Australia, quite a large country geographically. And people think of Japan as this little dot in the ocean. And actually, um, Okayama, we'd be about 450 miles, I believe. Would that be right, James? I thought it was about 400, but maybe 450. Yeah, something 400 like that. Yeah, and we're actually, uh, what, uh, I guess, what you'd call... Uh, upwind of the reactor so we're to the west and uh, the prevailing winds come from the west the north so um, really uh, we're we're simply not affected by the uh, by the accident yeah well certainly the fallout is completely going in the other direction for the most part and uh, and if you look at all of there's a lot of there's a lot of material that show these radiation maps and uh, yeah and uh, you know we're safe (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Well, if you look at the the fallout maps, including the latest radionuclide distribution map that just went up uh, today on FukushimaUpdate.com, it's uh, very clearly in that area. You can definitely see uh, quite a bit of contamination in, obviously, in Fukushima Prefecture and the surrounding mm, prefectures, mm. but uh, but nothing really getting over here. In fact, there is uh, uh, there's a cesium-137 map that I just put up today that interestingly shows in our part of uh, uh, Japan, which is called Chugoku, there is actually sort of a an area where there is some, Shadow, some cesium-137 that, yeah. contamination, but I, I think that's probably more related, if anything, to the nuclear power plants that are in this our neck of the woods rather than Fukushima Ab- itself. Absolutely, uh, James. We do have one in a prefecture called uh, Shimane, which is just to the to the north of here. And I think it's very, very important to, to make the distinction to your listeners about what is detectable radiation and what are dangerous levels of radiation. Uh, and I think that's not really getting enough coverage on the, the Western presses. So, um, you know, my family in Australia or friends in North America watching CNN, um, and watching CNN myself here in, in, in Japan, it's certainly getting a different story. I think there's a lot more sensationalism. And, and that's where I'm sort of caught between, I'm caught in two minds about, I think you can't be too careful about something like this but we don't want to play into the hands of uh, sensationalism. Agreed. I think there, that it cuts both ways and that there's mm, a hype mm. and sensationalism possible on both sides of the issue. There's either the downplaying or the overplaying, and I don't want to be caught up in either of them. But uh, but just to put that, that distance issue in perspective for some of the American listeners out there, I mean, 400, 450 miles in that range, you're talking roughly the distance between, say, New York and Raleigh, North Carolina. So... If you're talking about Raleigh, North Carolina, a, a, an accident happening there, and you want to evacuate New York City, I mean, that's the kind of thing that we're, we're looking at here, which which might help put things into perspective for people. It's it's quite a considerable distance, and it, as you say, it is um, not in the path of the, the prevailing winds. So exactly. so let's talk about some of the, the stories, because I, I, I agree. I think some of this is sensationalistic and overblown. For example, I've seen a lot of stories where... Um, I, I remember specifically, it was around April or May, seeing stories that were talking about um, radiation readings that were detected, and they were giving the number in microsieverts, but it was something like, you know, a 1,000 microsieverts, which, of mm. course, is just one millisievert, but it sounds exactly. much more scarier to say 1,000 Exactly, yeah, yeah. That's a, that's a really good example of uh, irresponsible journalism. 
Right. And and another thing that I was thinking, for example, the you might have seen in the last few days, there's been a big story about uh, iodine-131 detected over Europe. And uh, mm-hmm. there, the IAEA came out to say it's not related to Fukushima, and mm-hmm. uh, they don't know where it's from at this point, but they're saying it's not Fukushima-related. Iodine-131 is a, uh, a product of nuclear fission, but it has a half-life of eight days. So they're mm. saying it couldn't possibly be from Fukushima, which uh, supposedly exactly hasn't been producing iodine-131 for months now, although there was that spontaneous nuclear fission that happened a couple of weeks ago. But um, but I, I think that's an interesting story to look at because you've got a lot of people saying, well, obviously it has to be from Fukushima. But to, to my mind, that doesn't make any sense really because, as we say, the prevailing winds are heading from here to the east, i.e. towards mm. the western shores of North America. So it would clearly be over there before it would get anywhere near Europe. So this clearly has to be from a different source, but I think a lot of people still would would tend to not believe the official story on that one. No, that's right, and yeah, and it tends to be a, a natural reaction if if radiation's detected anywhere. Where's the first place people are going to think of? They're instantly going to think of uh, Fukushima. But uh, I guess that's the advantage, or disadvantage, advantage of these particular isotopes. Um, when they do detect this radiation, uh, they they can detect the the exact isotope that results. Uh, from nuclear fission that comes from these reactors, which was how they could distinguish between some hotspots that they found in Tokyo recently. You know, at first they found high levels of radiation, or higher than normal, but uh, that became a big story. But the story that didn't come out the next day was, oh, well, actually this was uh, some expired radon from a, um, you know, and some X-ray equipment, so... Um, that doesn't seem to make the news as much as uh, a, a hotspot being detected in Tokyo. Exactly right. Exactly right. Again, it's uh, it's followed up when it's uh, when it's suitable, <laughs> but not when when it doesn't suit the story, I guess. And and that exactly. happens again. It happens on both sides. And I'm not here to uh, to downplay what's happening there. I think it is important, mm. and that's obviously why I'm following it. It's just I I don't want to overreact, and and that's that's why I think when people are, uh, hear about this news, they're they're obviously just so so amazed that I'm still here. But but as we say, it's, uh, it's a considerable distance. But the, the thing that really concerns me at this point of, of what we're going through is the issue of uh, the food supply, which to me is, is the, main, the main thing, the main way that it will be getting into the, the population of Japan at any rate, um, as opposed That's... to the direct fallout. So, so what's your feelings on the, the food supply situation? Yeah, it was interesting, James. It was only two or three years ago we had a few food scandals with uh, imported vegetables from China. I'm sure you'll remember and, uh, you know, so all the products would be clearly shown as, you know, produced, grown in Japan. And uh, now it's come down to a prefectural level. So in Japan, as many of your listeners might know, we don't actually have states. We have prefectures. So uh, you can see which area the, you know, the produce comes from. And, uh, yeah, to be honest, um, yeah, I'm very uh, careful about what I buy. So I try and get as much local produce as, as as uh, as often as I can. But, uh, yeah, I'm really concerned for the people in uh, Tohoku, northern Japan, and particularly Fukushima, uh, you know, especially when you hear about breast milk being contaminated and school children being forced to drink potentially contaminated milk, which was uh, quite a disturbing story to, to hear about. Absolutely, and of course that was one of the the main concerns in the wake of the Chernobyl disaster was the milk mm. contamination. So I think that is one of the vectors for this getting into the population and bioaccumulating. Which again, to me, it's that's that's the real worry. And I, I thought there was a really interesting story that came out the other day. I didn't I didn't make a separate post for it. Maybe I should on FukushimaUpdate.com about um, 
some fishermen in Fukushima who have said they're going to actually stop um, fishing. They're not going to be selling any of their fish because uh, they were told by the government, oh, it's safe, it's 0.1 becquerels per kilogram, it's way below the limits, it's fine. But uh, when the I fishermen did their own that. investigation, they were taking a look mm-hmm. at TEPCO's own numbers, and they did their own calculations and said, no, it's much, much higher. So, so that exactly. was really... Uh, and, you know, um, miles and miles away in Tokyo Bay of uh, Chiba, which is a, a neighboring prefecture to Tokyo, uh, they're fi- finding elevated levels of uh, contamination in the water in Tokyo Bay, which is, you know, I don't know, one, 100, 150 miles away. So, uh, yeah, I can only imagine the levels of contamination uh, around the, the troubled reactor. Right, especially since it was just leaking into the ocean for so long. <laughs> exactly, um, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I wasn't actually in the country when it, this all started. I was in Canada had at a, that time. You had a wedding to attend, if I seem to remember. Uh, actually, a funeral, but um, but other way around. Um, oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but I was I was in Canada at that time, and uh, so I I was not not really following the news, obviously, at that time. So I didn't really see the the first few days of coverage. But I'm interested to see how that was covered in Japan. What were you hearing about yeah. it at the time, and w- were the people around you were they interested, or was it just another just another oh. story to them? Uh, are you talking about the earthquake and tsunami, or uh, uh, both? I guess, yeah, both the, this, oh, the nuclear situation story. and the tsunami. Oh, it was a massive story. I've never seen anything like it in my life. Um, uh, I guess Japan is no no stranger to, to natural disasters, uh, but uh, this this was uh, one of, of epic proportions. Uh, now, this happened on a Friday, if I seem to remember, maybe around 3 o'clock. I started getting all these emails and phone calls, and I was teaching at the time, and I was thinking, oh, God, what's happening? And, uh, yeah, and coming home from work that day, Pretty much for the next two or three days, and I was just glued to the to the television, just uh, watching everything that was transpiring. At that time, the nuclear reactor wasn't getting a great deal of attention compared to you know we had all this amazing footage of you know the tsunami just demolishing entire cities. Uh, I guess it was a a better story for want of a better word, and it was graphic. We but we were constantly kept up to date. With the uh, with the issue in Fukushima, and uh, but it was downplayed. It was downplayed for the first couple of days, which I, I think, as time has gone on, and we've seen this cover up after t- cover up from Tepco and, and blatant dishonesty, uh, it's not surprising that it was downplayed at first. Um, not a very uh, reputable company. Uh, they've got a history of scandals. Uh, one of my students has uh, a working relationship with them, and uh, the, the stories are, are unbelievable. So it wasn't until, I guess, we started seeing reactors exploding that uh, we realized something serious was happening. And uh, I guess the government got pretty uh, strict with TEPCO, the operator of that reactor, and uh, demanded some answers. And, uh, you know... And, it's, we've still got details emerging. It seems like this veil of secrecy that, that's still uh, covering up exactly what went on. Well, unfortunately, that's right. I think it, it seems more like uh, the, the minister in charge of this, this, this Goshi Hosono guy, seems more like a PR representative than an than a actual investigator or anything of that sort. Um, of course, we had different people involved with this at the time. There was a different prime minister, a different cabinet. So uh, mm-hmm. the political deck has been shuffled here in Japan, as it's wont to do every few months. But, uh, but once again... Hey, I was just going to say absolutely, and 
Well, it certainly isn't uh, non-existent in other countries. Uh, cronyism seems to be uh, prolific in Japan. So a lot of these people in, in government and regulators from the, from the Nuclear Industry and Safety Agency uh, here in Japan, uh, often when they retire, they, um, they get um, very well-paid jobs with these companies. And TEPCO is the largest provider of electricity in Japan, and that was uh, getting a job with TEPCO was quite a, a prestigious position. Huh. Yeah, well, sadly, no, the cronyism is not unique to Japan by any means. And uh, mm. there was an explosive story, to pardon the pun, that came out from Informable.com last week about uh, RADNET, which was the radiation monitoring system in the U.S., which had gone into some extra monitoring. They were doing more physical testing and things um, mm. in the wake of the crisis. But as of April, the nuclear industry stepped in to get them to stop doing the extra testing because some of the readings had declined in some of the locations, so they said, okay, it's all, all under control now, and they stopped doing the extra testing. So, so again, nuclear industry has an immense amount of uh, control over the, what what, you, what governments do and their actions, as I think we've we've seen demonstrated quite markedly in this whole disaster. So I'd like to, uh, to come back from the break to talk a little bit about the uh, TEPCO itself and what stories you might have heard about it. But, uh, but I, sure. I mean, this is just such a, a huge story that it's, Undoubted, it's going to be affecting the rest of the country for, for a whole long, long time. So uh, I, I just want to hear more about, uh, about what's going on in your mind and in the minds of, uh, obviously, your family about this whole disaster. But on that note, let's take a few-minute break. So don't touch that dial. We'll be right back on Corbett Report Radio. Back, friends, to the closing minutes of Corbett Report Radio. I am your host, James Corbett, from CorbettReport.com, and tonight we're talking to Jamie Owens, a fellow expatriate living here in Japan, an Australian who's been living here for eight years now, and uh, we're talking tonight, of course, about the Fukushima nuclear crisis and our perspective on that as foreigners living here in Japan. So, uh, Jamie, I understand that you uh, you understand you know a little bit about the history of TEPCO and their history of scandals. Perhaps you can share some of those tidbits with us. Yeah, they've had a lot, James, actually. Um, probably the most recent large scandal they had is in 2002. Uh, they were found to be falsifying records, and actually the government forced them to shut down all their reactors, which I believe 18 or maybe maybe 17 reactors, um, possibly. And they were forced to, uh, to shut all of them down uh, pending a an investigation. Uh, but, uh, yeah... Actually, uh, an interesting experience I had a few months ago, I was talking to a student who works for a very large, well-known electronic company here in Japan. I'm sure your listeners would know. I can't name it. I believe they still have a relationship. But uh, it was his job to supply and maintain a lot of the electronic devices that they would uh, give to TEPCO. So he would often go into these, uh, these power plants and so on. And he was just telling me over the last 20 years how their, mm, I guess their, the way they conduct themselves has changed. Um, uh, basically, they used to have a very good relationship, and business relationships in Japan are very strong, you know, not just the relationship itself. You spend a lot of time socializing, going out to dinner. It's quite a strong connection. And uh, this particular company would often invite them out for dinner and they'd come 
then all of a sudden they would stop. Um, they would just flatly reject to, to socialise. They turned down all invitations to dinner. He would go into these power plants and he said he's never seen anything like it in his life, people surfing the net, reading magazines. Uh, one guy was boasting about his salary and then made him come out into the car park and have a look at his, uh, his new European car. And uh, they were just uh, completely arrogant, just boasting about how little work they actually have to do. And um, the first image that flashed into my mind was of Homer Simpson sitting there with the dinner. Exactly, exactly what I'm thinking. It sounds and exactly ran, like this yeah, real plan. And I ran that by the student, but unfortunately never heard of the Simpsons. But um, it was just, you know, they were bragging about how little work they have to do the amount of money they make, you know, this is the great thing about nuclear power. You know, this is anecdotal evidence. This is one guy's experience with the company, but uh, it's hardly surprising given all the, the details that are coming out now. No, not surprising in the least. And, uh, mm-hmm. and again, uh, yeah, the money to be made in this industry is ridiculous when you think about it, especially the way it was sold in the 50s as too cheap to meter energy, and uh, mm-hmm. suddenly it's become, you know, too big to fail with the... TEPCO getting billions and billions of dollars now in uh, bailout money from the Japanese government. So, um, so it's just a ridiculous situation. When yeah, when, you, when you're dealing with such a, a dishonest company and the government, who governments aren't well known for their, for their honesty and transparency, so uh, you've got these two difficult bodies working together. So to, you know, to get clear and accurate information from from the Japanese government and TEPCO and, and both of them working together, it's, it's uh, completely ridiculous. It is, it is outrageous, one might even say. Absolutely. Well, uh, again, it's great to have you on to talk about this because I, th- I know a lot of people out there are concerned about myself and, and about my wife, and I just wanted to have, have you on to go over this because, again, I'm not yeah. here to endanger the life of my family or, or my friends or anything by being here. I think uh, this if is under If there was any risk, I love my little girls. If there was any risk, exactly. uh, there's no way I would be here. That's exactly right. All right. Well, thank you once again for your time and uh, give my regards to your lovely wife and girls. And I will talk to you all again tomorrow night on Corbett Report Radio here on Republic Broadcasting.